Okay, well, hey, let's, uh, let's jump into our study of God's Word today, shall we? We're going to jump back into the book of Hebrews. So if you're uh, new with us, you want to go near to the end of your Bibles. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful book, and hopefully you've been in, enjoying this study so far. We are uh, moving along. We're going to begin chapter 3 today. And in this chapter, the author is going to move to kind of a new, uh, a new thought, sort of a new direction, although the theme of the, the whole book really continues, and it's really one constant uh, point, one constant argument that the author is trying to make, and that is Jesus is better than anything, <laughs> anything that you could imagine. And he certainly started out that way in chapter 1, didn't he? Jesus is your creator. He's your sustainer. Everything in this world holds together because of Jesus. And he keeps it all together, and one day he's going to inherit all of it. And after purging the sins of mankind, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and there he reigns. And it's just such a magnificent opening to present this Jesus to us. But then he kind of launched into a particular argument, didn't he? Jesus is better than angels. And we looked at that throughout chapter uh, 1 and into chapter most of chapter 2. And the reason he did that is because, particularly for this Jewish audience in this church here, they, they revered angels, and angels were held in such high regard. And many people today even think that Jesus is nothing more than a created being, like an angel. But the point was made very strongly that, oh no, angels worship Jesus. He does not worship them. He is higher than the angels. He is divine. He created them. They are there to worship him. And then he issued such a strong warning, didn't he, in in the beginning of chapter 2. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't neglect this teaching. Listen to it, because it's telling us who Jesus is. And so all throughout this has been such a a wonderful study of just lifting Jesus' name high. And then we kind of launched into a section here. We're talking about Jesus' role in our salvation. Do you remember? He's the captain of our salvation, is what we were uh, told there. And because he suffered obediently for us, he suffered as we do. He suffered in temptation. And because he suffered, he is able, we are able to identify with him and he with us uh, about suffering. Uh, he, he knows exactly what we go through. He knows exactly what we went through. And he was able to sanctify us, make us holy by giving us his righteousness. He took our place on the cross He gave us his righteousness so positionally we might be holy. And then, boy, that death on the cross, that conquered death, Satan's greatest weapon. And so we looked at him being the conqueror of Satan. And he's also a a merciful and faithful high priest. We can uh, come to us in time of of help. And so all these things we have been looking at over the past several uh, weeks, and he did all of these things, he did all these wonderful things, he did them for mankind. He did not do them for angels. We were told this in verse 16 of our study last week. If you want to just look at that, verse 16 of chapter 2, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So Jesus has come for you and for me. But the greatness of Jesus, although it's been lifted to such great heights, the author feels that he must point out a specific area in which Jesus is greater still. You might think, well, how can he be still be greater than something? He's already greater than angels. He's the creator of everything. Because he has a Jewish audience. And because he has a Jewish audience, he must touch on this point, that Jesus is, in fact, even greater than Moses. Now, we're a modern New Testament crowd, and we might just all be thinking, yeah, duh, Jesus is greater than Moses. I, Of course he is. I have no problem with that. But If you were a Jew, well, you'd have a really big problem with that, which is why the author addresses the issue, and he's going to do that over the next couple of chapters. And you see it here. I'll just draw your attention to verse 3 of chapter 3. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That's really where it comes into play there. Why does he want to talk about the greatness of Jesus in comparison to Moses? I, I think for this, it's going to take a little bit of a history lesson. So if you hate history, I'm sorry, <laughs> but we're going to do a little bit of a history because I can't assume that everybody knows exactly who Moses was and what he did. If you were a, uh, an Israelite, if you were a Hebrew, you were a Jew, Moses was the greatest Hebrew that ever lived. 
In fact, many thought he was just the greatest man who ever lived, period. And to see how great he is, we really need to look back into our Bibles. And I'm going to take you back, if you're willing to turn there, all the way back to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 2. We're just going to walk through some points as we walk through Exodus to see why was Moses so great in the mind of the Jew. And the first point we're going to look at is that he was the divinely chosen person. God chose Moses. When you read the story of Moses and the Exodus, you cannot walk away without seeing that. Obviously, God divinely protected him and chose him. In Exodus chapter 2, we see the birth of Moses. And I'm going to read this, these first 10 verses. Exodus chapter 2, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, the reason she hid him is because they were slaves of the Egyptians, and they were outgrowing in in number, the Egyptians. So they were given an order to kill all the male children. So she did not want to kill her own child, so she hid him for three months. But then he got too old to hide. So verse 3, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and hid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would, ha- what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that they may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. Now that was divine protection. Who knows what had happened to that child just floating down the river in a little handmade ark, but brought him into Pharaoh's household. But then we see that God got a hold of this man's life. Now Moses saw the, the, the torment that his people were undergoing at the hands of the Egyptians, and one day he killed an Egyptian and hid the man's body. And Moses, uh, the Pharaoh found out about it, and so Moses had to flee. And so he fled into the area of Midian, And there he was for 40 years. And during that time, God was refining him and preparing him for the moment that God would call him to do something extraordinary. And we read about it in Exodus chapter 3. Look at beginning in verse 2. Exodus 3 verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire but the bush was not consumed. So there's fire in it, but it's not actually burning away. This is a miracle because this is God in the bush. Skip down to verse uh, uh, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then down in verse 10, he says, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So obviously, God preserved this man to do something extraordinary. You're going to be my man to bring out my people out of slavery. And he was their great deliverer. As you begin to read through Exodus, you read about these amazing plagues that God did through uh, really Moses' hand and his staff to bring upon Egypt to to make them let the children of Israel uh, uh, go. And when you read about it in chapter 7, just skip ahead to chapter 7, verse 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. Amazing. 
And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. So there you have it. He does this miracle right in front of them. And there's plague after plague after plague. And finally, you have the firstborn, a death of the firstborn happening. And finally, Pharaoh relinquishes and he lets the people go. But they go and they come to the sea. Remember that? The Red Sea is blocking them. They can't escape. Pharaoh starts to to, uh, chase them. And in chapter 14, we read about this amazing miracle. Again, once again, Moses being the center point of this in 1421. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And I know you've seen these, uh, this recreated in movies and in cartoons, even animated uh, things, to see that the, the, the water split, and they walked through the midst of that on dry land. They were able to escape out the other side. And that was seen uh, by all that Moses did that through his rod. It was the power of God that did it. Later on, you read about water coming from the rock that he struck with his staff. And so over and over again, there's an example of him being seen in the eyes of the people as the great deliverer. What a great man. Who has ever done anything like that? In fact, we're told that he was their greatest prophet. I'll just put this verse up for you on the screen. It's Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Then he said, hear now my words. This is God talking. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This happens when Aaron and Miriam challenge Moses' leadership. And so God says, hold on a second. He's not just any man. I don't speak to him in visions like that. I speak to him face to face. He's my faithful servant. So he was seen in the eyes of the Israelites as the greatest prophet ever. If you go to Exodus 34, just keep walking through Exodus 34. We see this again there. 34 verses 29 to 30. This is when Moses is on the mountain and God is giving him the Ten Commandments and he comes down from the mountain. Verse 29, chapter 34, verse 29. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. He had spent such close time in the glory of the Lord that his face literally shone. Now, he is also known because he had spent time with the Lord, and he was the great prophet, but that he was the one who brought the law. He was the great lawgiver. They they worshiped the law, didn't they? The first five books, they worship. Well, that has the Ten Commandments in there. They worship the law. And he was the lawgiver. If you just read on in verse 31, then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came near and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken them uh, to him on Mount Sinai. So he'd given them the law. They revered him for this, and obviously he was the author of the Pentateuch. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, you have all this stuff that that we're told he is. You would think, boy, this must have been the most pompous individual on the planet, right? If anyone was this great. But you know what? We're told the opposite. We're told that he was actually the humblest person on earth. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. In fact, so revered was Moses that the people stood in honor of him. When he would come out of his tent and walk to the door of the tabernacle, they would stand in his presence. Look at Exodus 33.8. I'll just put it on the screen for you. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. Amazing. They revered him. And, And of course, the book of Deuteronomy ends with this amazing epitaph of Moses. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. 
But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Is it any wonder then that the Jews thought so highly of Moses? He was a hero. Some even thought he was even greater than angels. Now, because he was so highly revered by the people, God did something amazing. He was worried, I think, that they might have worshipped him after he died. I think that he was worried they would even worship his bones because God hid Moses when he died. He hid his body. No one knows where he was buried. We're told in Deuteronomy 34, 6, he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. And even the book of Jude reveals a little bit that that Satan even wanted to use the bones of Moses in some nefarious way, that Michael the archangel had to fight him over the body of Moses. Because obviously, why? Because if he could somehow get the bones out and get them, people would worship. Don't we do that? We worship the dead. We worship our idols. And God did not want uh, them to worship Moses. God wanted them to worship someone else, a greater prophet that would come. And that is what this is about. In Hebrews chapter 3, you can turn back there, as we're being shown here that Jesus is better than Moses. So let's read it today. It's chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Let's pray. Ask the Lord's blessing on our time. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it, to read it today. And I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts for what you want to show us, Lord. Uh, illuminate, Illuminate truth to us, Lord. We need your spirit to reveal the wonderful truths that are in this passage today, Lord, that are our hearts might expand, our minds might expand on how great a Savior we have in Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the author, as the author has been doing, he's just been um, making very simple points along the way, hasn't he? He's been pretty, pretty simple. And this first point is a pretty simple point as well, that Jesus is better in his offices, in, in the offices that Jesus held. And if you look at verse 1, We'll just start the first part of verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. We'll just look at that much because he he says some things I want to touch on first. Uh, First of all, it says, therefore, so this is a connection to the previous section of verses. So we've got to make sure we understand that. And remember, the previous section of verses told us that we are brethren of Jesus, that that he's not ashamed to call us brethren, that we are all of one, we were told. And in fact, verse 17, which is right, right prior uh, to this, said that he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful a high priest. So, so here we're called in, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, holy brethren. So he's been called brethren, but now we're inserted with holy brethren. Why are you called holy brethren? You know now why, church, right? Because positionally you are. You are holy brethren. If you're his brethren, well, then you're holy brethren. And we are partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, this is an amazing beginning here. We're partakers of the heavenly calling. This word partakers is important. We looked at it before. It's the word shared back in uh, verse, uh, what is that, verse 14 we looked at. It's translated shared there. It's meteko, to take part or participate in. Um, Here, it's translated partakers. And in, in verse 14, we looked at that. We were called partakers of the flesh and blood. That word means koinonia, fellowship. We, what we have in common with one another is that we're flesh and blood. But Jesus doesn't have that in common with us. He's not flesh and blood. He metekoed. He participated in flesh and blood, right? 
That was verse 14. Here, that word is used for us. We are now participators of a, of a heavenly calling. A heavenly calling is now what we can take part in because we're brethren. We're, we're brethren of Christ. I love this heavenly calling. Now, this is beginning a, a theme that we're going to see throughout, that, throughout the book of Hebrews. Uh, you might remember in the introduction to Hebrews, we talked about this briefly, that this word heavenly is a major theme. We're going to see the heavenly gift in chapter 6, verse 4. That refers to the salvation that we have, the heavenly gift. We'll see the, the heavenly things in chapters 8 and 9. That relates to the tabernacle on earth was sort of a shadow or, or a copy of, of heavenly things, things that exist in heaven. In chapter 11, we'll see that there's a heavenly country that we, have look, we get to look forward to. And in chapter 12, we'll dwell in a heavenly Jerusalem. So this is a theme we're going to see, and it, it pops its head up right here, the heavenly. Now, that word, the heavenly, is important. Epuranios is the word, and it means existing in heaven or of heavenly origin or nature. So you and I have a heavenly calling. I love this. It describes the future of the holy brethren, a heavenly calling. We've received the heavenly gift, right? We've received the heavenly gifts, so therefore we partake of the heavenly things. One day we'll, we'll dwell in a heavenly country and in a heavenly Jerusalem. Now that is the truth of, of uh, our future. Philippians 3.20, Paul said it this way, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a citizenship that is a heavenly citizenship, which is good to know. No one can revoke that citizenship, right? You've got it. It's a heavenly calling. And we, uh, we, we look forward to that. You know, one day we want to we wanna be there. We want to have those heavenly things. But did you know that we currently have heavenly spiritual blessings? We do. We have heavenly spiritual blessings here even right now. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We, we have heavenly blessings even right here, right now, on this earth. So heaven, in a way, comes down to earth in a bit, in, in that in believers, we have been blessed with heavenly things. And right now, we're even told that we live in, spiritually speaking, in heavenly places. Later on in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that Jesus raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, you might be sitting here saying, hold on a second, I don't sit in heaven. I'm not sitting in a heavenly place. But listen, so sure is your heavenly calling that right now where you sit, if you died right where you sit, instantly you're sitting in the heavenly place. So sure is your calling. It's as if you sit in the heavenly places. This is a vapor. This is a very transitory life, a very, very temporary one. And it could end just like that, could it not? And so sure is the, the resting place that you have in heaven. We're told in Ephesians that you have, you have been made to sit there even now. There's a, a seat reserved for you. Somewhere there's a seat that says Kevin Berthium. Or maybe it has a different name. I don't know. <laughs> Booyah. I don't know what it says. But it, I'm going to have some name. And I get at that seat. There's a place reserved for me and for you. Now, these are wonderful truths. So because these things are so true, notice what he says here. The second half of verse 1, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. This word consider slows us down. Consider these things. Consider. That word is katano eo, and it means to fix your eye upon. Fix your mind upon these things. Jesus used that word. He said, consider the ravens. God even feeds those ravens. I want you to stop long enough to think about this fact. You're worried about your, your stuff. He feeds ravens. He says, consider the lilies. You're worried where you're going to get clothing from? He, he clothes the lilies. Stop and think about it. Fix your eye upon that. James, he uses this word when he talks about observing a man's face in a mirror. Do you remember that? The mirror is God's word. He said, a man who reads God's word but does not do God's word is like a man who has looked in his face and has just walked away and he forgets what he looks like. But we're told to consider, consider what it says about you. God's word reveals who we really are. We're sinners in need of saving. And so this word consider is very important. Here's a definition I found for it. Fix your thoughts expresses attention and continuous observation and regard. 
It means to apply one's mind diligently to fix one's attention in such a way that the significance of the thing is learned. That's the point. What we want to do is we want to consider what we're hearing about Jesus. We want to stop and think about it long enough so that we get the significance of it. We're told to consider all that was said about Jesus in the previous section, and that is bringing us into this section. Namely, notice what it says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, what is an apostle? An apostle simply is a sent one. That's all the word means. Jesus repeatedly, when he walked this earth, said he was sent by the Father into the world. He came to suffer, we looked at this last week, as our substitute to sanctify us for himself. And because he did all that, he is the ultimate sent one, isn't he? Everything we've read up to this point is Jesus sent to us. He was made a little lower than the angels. You and I are lower than angels, but he was made a little lower than the angels, like us, like man, so that he could become one of us and be our sufferer, be our substitute, and sanctify us, pay the price for us, sent to us. And you got to think about this. This is why we have to consider it. Without the sending of Jesus into the world, there would not be the saving of man. Right now, if Jesus had never come and done that, right now we all stand condemned and doomed. There's no hope for anyone sitting here today. That's a scary thought. Scary thought. I am thankful that all my life on this earth that I've known that Jesus came. I think most everybody here that is alive today, right? Jesus came long before you, so you've been around, and all you've known is that Jesus came. Could you imagine coming a time? There's no Jesus yet. Jesus came. He was the sent one, and he came to restore man to his destiny. One day, we're going to rule and reign with him. Now, Moses, Moses is also a sent one. We looked at that. We did that history. I don't need to go back through that again, do I? But Moses is sent one. He was sent by God to deliver his people from Egypt. But, Je- but Jesus, he is the final. He's the definitive apostle. He's the ultimate sent one. Moses was sent to his people, Israel. But Jesus was sent to mankind, all people. Now, notice we're also to consider the fact that he's our high priest. And again, we touched on this in the previous uh, section. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what it said in verse 17 of chapter 2. And we looked at that big, long word, that, that propitiation word. We looked at the definition of that last week. It means wrath quenching or atoning for or uh, satisfying the wrath of, of God. And isn't that what the Old Testament priests did? You know, they took, they took whatever animal that person brought and they sacrificed the blood of that animal to God on behalf of the sins of the person. That's what they did. And they did that to satisfy the wrath of God. God is angry about sin. That's just the simple truth. And so, so we all have a penalty to pay. It's death. But God in his great mercy has given a temporary, a temporary covering in the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and even pigeons and things, right, in the Old Testament. And that's what the, the priests did. But it was temporary, and they had to do it over and over again. And I don't want to go too much into this because uh, many of you know Hebrews. Hebrews is really going to get into the high priest thing and the sacrifice thing. And chapters 4 and 5 is going to talk a lot about it. We'll cover it in more detail then. But suffice it to say, Jesus is our high priest. He has made a sacrifice once for all. And we looked at those verses. But here's a question. Was Moses a high priest? Now, I read a lot of commentaries, and some said, no, that can't, Moses wasn't a high priest, so he doesn't really mean Moses. Well, Moses wasn't officially a priest. You're, you're right. Uh, his brother Aaron was the priest. But you got to think about the time that Moses came. You know, this is a big transition time. God is establishing these things in the life of the people. He's establishing the tabernacle. He's establishing the Levitical priesthood situation. What happens in the meantime? Who is the advocate? Well, it is Moses. Moses is the one that interceded for the people. He, he's the one that, that did all of that. Uh, no one else did that. If you think about early on in the battles that they had to face when they went into going into the promised land prior to that, coming into it, the Amalekites. You remember that battle? And, and Moses sat down with his arms in the air and the staff in his hand. And as long as he held his hands up in the air, uh, the battle went in their favor. 
But, I mean, how long can you just stand there and hold something? You know, you start to get weak, and his arms would get tired. And when they would come down, then the battle swung in the favor of the Amalekites. And we're told that who came and helped him? Aaron, who was the priest, or would be the priest, and her. They lifted his arms and held his arms up so they could win that battle. In fact, the man who became the priest was the man who really failed, Aaron. When the children of Israel said, hey, we need a God to worship, he said, oh, fine, give me all your gold and I'll make you a God. He made a golden calf. Well, who was it that interceded for the people then? Because God wanted to obliterate them. God said, fine, all right, I'm done. (laughs) I'm wiping them out. It was Moses. Moses said, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't kill your people. You know, give them, give them time. Be merciful. So it was Moses that interceded for the people. And he also performed priestly functions early on, like the sprinkling of blood that would ultimately go to the, the, the priest. So Moses was only filling in, I think, while the priestly role and line was being established. So in a sense, uh, Moses was a priest. But who is the great high priest? Well, Jesus. He was so much greater than Moses and any other uh, priest that came along. And so he is, we're told to consider how great these, these little offices we appoint, you know, apostle and high priest, how great Jesus is in both of those roles. But we're also to see that Jesus is better in his building. He's better in his building. Look at verse 2. Who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now, both were faithful to God. Moses and Jesus, both faithful to God. And even as we look at the lives of both Jesus and Moses, we can, we can see right away that one of them was perfect. Right? One of them perfectly faithful, and that was Jesus. In fact, we just read about it in John 8, 29. Jesus himself says, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Can anyone say that, by the way? <laughs> I always do those things that please him. We, none of us can say that. And Moses, honestly, we'll look at that. He couldn't even say that perfectly. But Jesus could. He perfectly obeyed the Father. I always do those things that please him. In John 17, 4, he said, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. That's why Jesus came. He came to glorify the Lord on the, on the earth and then do what God had called him to to do. But when you look at the life of Moses, he believed the promises of God, sure. Um, he believed in his power, but he took some refining, didn't he? It took 40 years out in Midian to even make him usable. And then he used him for 40 years. But even then, Moses did not perfectly obey. In fact, once in anger, he struck the rock twice rather than speaking to it. God told him to speak to it. And because he struck it, God severely punished him. He said, you're not going to go into the promised land. In fact, look at the words that God used to Moses when he uh, rebuked him. Numbers 20, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So God would not let him, as faithful of a man he was, to go into that promised land. But think about this. God still called him faithful. He was still known as a faithful man. He's faithful, we're told here, back in our passage, in all his house. That's the word that's being used, in all his house. That word simply means household. Moses was a steward of God's household. That's what he was. Old Testament believers were God's household, his his people. Moses, he was a steward of that. Who owned the house? God did. God owned the house of Israel, but Moses, well, he simply managed it. And it was in his management of God's household that God counted him as faithful. And you know what's great? New Testament believers, we are called the household of God as well, aren't we? We're God's house. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We were strangers. We were foreigners. But Look at this. We're citizens. We're saints. We belong in this household of God. In fact, we're being built up. As, the, as numbers are adding to the church, the body of Christ worldwide, as more people come into the body, we're told that it's being built up into a giant spiritual house, that we're making up one house. We're not many little houses, by the way. We're one house, one spiritual house. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, it says, "...coming to him as to a living stone." Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, were living stones, 
are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we come to Christ, who is a living stone, we are also living stones. And we're being built up into this giant spiritual house, he says. And, and we're, because we're in this spiritual house, we're accept, acceptable to God. And how's that come? Through Christ Jesus, it says. So Jesus, he's the one that cares for this household. It's not Moses. Jesus cares for it. He's the one that's been faithful to this house. So here's the point. Jesus has been faithful. Moses has been faithful. They're both on the same level, right? No, they're not. Look at verse 3. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is worth more glory than Moses. Why? We'll read on. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Now, this is really cool. Can I just ask you a question? This is going to get deep for a moment, so just stick with me. Did Moses build the house of Israel? What do you think? He managed the house, right? He managed it. He, he was part of the house. Was he responsible for building any of that house? What would you say to that? Let me ask you an easier question. Who wrote the book of Romans? See, you're laughing. Why? What's the answer? Yeah, but you could say Paul, and that would be 100% right. You could say the Holy Spirit, and that would be 100% right. You could say Moses uh, built this spiritual house, and you would be right. But you could say God built this house, and guess what? She would be right. The Bible presents, stick with me here, perspectives. We're given man's perspectives on things, and we're given God's perspective on things. And if you don't understand that, you really run into a lot of trouble in understanding difficult doctrines of Scripture. We must understand that there are two perspectives that run through all of Scripture, and they're key in understanding difficult things. From a human perspective, when you share the gospel with someone, and they accept Christ into their heart, and they're added to the household of God, you have built the house a bit. You've, you've added to that. But you, you're, you're not the sole part of that. From God's perspective, God alone builds the house. He alone is the one who uh, touches the heart because the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts of sin and, and all those things. So on the one hand, you are responsible for part of God's house. On the other hand, we're just instruments, and it's God who does those things. So what is the answer to the question, did Moses build the house? Well, here comes the answer. It's in verse Four, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. <laughs> There's a great theological verse for you right there, right? We all have human hands. We're all responsible for things that we do. But listen, ultimately, it's God who does all things. He, he does it all. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing to think about it, but it is it's true. Now, What's fascinating about this passage is that the author doesn't specifically say this phrase, Jesus is the builder of the house. He doesn't say that. Instead, he just constructs this analogy between Jesus and God. He says, Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. And then we're told who built the house? God. Do you see that? So Jesus, is, he's worthy of more glory. Stick with it what it says, because he built the house, but we're told that God built the house. So what is he saying? Jesus is God. Exactly. And he is. He was made a little lower than the angels at one point because he became a man. And as man, that's who he was. But then as God, he is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. So on the one hand, Jesus as a man, he was an apostle. He was a high priest. Uh, he was faithful to God just as Moses was faithful. But then on the other hand, he's the divine son of God. He's the builder of the house. He's the creator of whom all things, right? That's that's, that's how this all comes together. We have two sides of this. And you know what? We can all serve faithfully. I hope that I serve faithfully, laboring for the Lord and, and, and helping to build and add to this house years and years. But listen, when I am done and everything's done, I'm hoping to hear this phrase from my Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's, that's what I'm hoping to hear. As much as we may have contributed to the building of God's house, we're told very clearly here in verse 4, he who built all things is God. 
So the argument's very simple. Jesus is a better builder. He's saying, I don't care what Moses did. I don't care how great the Jewish people are. Jesus is a better builder. He's done a better building. This is a spiritual house that has expanded across the whole planet. And Jesus is the head of that house. Third point here, Jesus is better in his role. Look at verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. Now, you might be wondering, uh, where is the Old Testament support that the author loves to give? You know how the author likes to stop and then quote Old Testament passages? He hasn't done that so far, but this one's really cool. It's here, but it's sort of alluded to. It's hidden in the text. I'm going to show you a verse I already showed you early on. I showed you Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. I'm just going to put up verse 7, which is in the middle of that, okay? Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. Remember, he said, I, I speak to prophets in visions and dark sayings, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Now, notice those three words I underlined in that. Servant, faithful, house. Now, notice the passage. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. All three words are there. It's clear that the author has this verse in mind. He's taking their greatest verse for support of how great Moses is and is incorporating it here. He's like, oh, Moses, he was faithful in all his house. He was great. But even God said he was a servant. (laughs) Do you see that? Even God's word says he was a servant. And that word servant's only used here. It just means a servant of God. But, uh, and, and you know what? It's true. When you read Exodus, you go through chapters 35 to 40, faithfulness of Moses is mentioned 20 some odd times. You get to chapter 40, just his obedience is mentioned over eight times. He was so faithful to God. He's saying that's, that's true. But at the end of the day, he was only a servant. And this was all meant to be a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. What would be the things that would be spoken afterward, after Moses' faithfulness? What's, what's the testimony? What testimony is his life? Uh, what, what, everything that he's done, what is it a testimony for? Well, this takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. Just go back and look at it real quick. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, and Moses was a prophet, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. You see, everything Moses did, everything Moses said his whole life, that was a testimony, but it's only a testimony of the things that would come later that would be spoken afterward by whom? The son, by Christ. God would finally speak one final word through Jesus. So all the Old Testament, as we read the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus, doesn't it? And Jesus, you know, he met, he met Jews like this in the New Testament who were just Moses, Moses, Moses. And in John chapter 5, verse 46, he says something pretty remarkable. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. <laughs> I love that. Well, we don't believe you, but we believe, we believe Moses. We'll take Moses. We won't take this Jesus. He goes, you don't, you don't. Oh, that's interesting. Because if you believe Moses, you would believe me because, ha ha, he wrote a whole lot about me. And he did. And we're told here that his whole life was a testimony for Jesus, the coming of Christ. Moses may have been an incredibly great man, a faithful servant, but listen, he wasn't equal to Christ. He wasn't, and we're told here who Christ was, a son. Look at verse 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are. See, Christ is the Son. We've talked about in detail what the Son is, right? He's the inheritor. He, he gets it all. He's, does, does Moses have the house? No, Moses, I recall, was buried somewhere, and nobody knows where that is. His body. He's with the Lord in heaven. He didn't get the house. But Christ is Son over the house, and it says whose house we are. He, he gets the house. It's, it's his. Listen, this building that we meet, on, it, meet in is not the Lord's house. No structure on earth is the Lord's house. We were in an amazing church this week, and I spoke, uh, did one more Christian Life of Witness course, and I was there with Charlotte and, and Sarah Hughes, and we were in this church in um, Ponticlu and Bethel Baptist Church Center, I think is what it was called, and uh, you wouldn't know it from the outside, but it was an amazing structure on the inside, and, and we were walking. They said, oh, go, go take a tour, and so we walked around, and, and to be honest, we were just coveting a little bit, coveting, a little bit of coveting, and we were looking, I mean, it was just amazing structure, these wooden beams going up, and it looked like the inside of a hull of a ship, like the inside of the ark would be. 
Um, and it was, and they had a basketball center and a youth room and all these amazing things. And so I've repented of, of you know, of coveting. I don't know about Sarah and Charlotte, but uh, I did. But it was a beautiful structure. And I just thought, you know, wow, this is an amazing building. I was about to walk out. I was done for the day. And one of the ushers of the church there stopped me. And I just thanked him. Oh, thank you for letting us look around. You guys have a great place here. And you know what he said? I was just so impressed. He said, you know what? This is just a building. This is not the house of the Lord. The people are. I said, thank you, Lord. You got the right people running this place. This is just a tool, right? It gives us a place to meet. But this is not the house of the Lord. It doesn't matter how magnificent and beautiful it is. But you know, people worship those things, don't they? Oh, have you seen this Sistine Chapel? Have you seen these things like worship? Like, that's not the house of the Lord. This is the beautiful lives here. This is the house of the Lord. And we are all his house. Whose house we are. I love that. You remember I showed you Ephesians 2.19 where we were called the household of God. I want to show you the verses that follow that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. This is amazing. All of this has been built on a foundation laid, laid by the apostles and prophets. You know, the things they talked about, we knew the future church would be built upon that, but we needed the chief cornerstone. You can't build it without the chief cornerstone. And that was Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone cornerstone and in him the whole building is fit together i just love that passage and it's growing it's growing into a temple of lord for a dwelling place of god that's the church it's all built upon him and we're told in colossians 1 18 that he is the head of the church he's the head of the body the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence he is the son That means he is preeminent over the church. We belong to him. We don't belong to Moses. And so you kind of go back to the whole theme of this thing. If if you're wanting to leave Christianity, the suffering is so hard. They're they're following Christ and it's so hard. And they're thinking about going back to Judaism. You're, you're, You're only following a servant over God's house. But Jesus is the son over his house and we belong to him. And we're told here at the end, we know that we are of his house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, this is, we've got to take a moment here. I know we're just out of time, but let me just, we must hold fast. Now, that word means to, uh, to check a ship's headway, sort of to hold the head of the ship. Again, we have a nautical term here. We've got to keep our direction fixed. I remember, consider Jesus, fix your eyes and minds on him. Hold fast. Hold fast what? Two things, confidence. Hold fast confidence. The word here, parousia, is free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, assurance, all those, all those meanings, confidence. That word is used elsewhere in Hebrews, and you'll probably know those passages well when you come to them. Therefore, we can boldly enter the throne of grace. Yeah. Brethren, we have boldness to enter the holiest of holies. Same word, confidence. Confidently, boldly keep the ship going in the right direction. Even though the world is going the other way, even though the world's trying to distract you, keep going. And we're told to keep confidence and also rejoicing in the hope. That word means glorying or, or boasting, boasting in the hope. We keep holding fast our direction, boldly boasting of the incredible hope that can only be found in Christ. And I just want to touch on what is meant here by this word if, because this word if causes a whole lot of problems, doesn't it? We're his house if, oh no, what's the if? If we uh, hold fast the confidence and rejoice in the hope to the, to the end. Does if imply then that we can be kicked out of the household of Christ if, if we don't hold fast? Is that what is being taught here? Let me give a short, quick answer. No, you cannot uh, lose salvation. You cannot be kicked out of God's household. We can neither save ourselves, but we can neither keep ourselves saved. If it was dependent upon me, folks, to keep my salvation, I would have been lost a long time ago. It has nothing to do with my ability to hold on. If people leave the household of God, it's evidence that they never were part of it to begin with. And 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out 
that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Very simple argument, he says. If they were of us, they would have continued. Here's the point. If you continue firm to the end, it's proof that you were one, one of the household. One of the greatest, clearest truths of the New Testament is that the Lord keeps those who belong to him. John 6, 39 says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Nothing. Everything given to Jesus, whose house we are, we're told, he loses nothing. Now, the Holy Spirit writing this passage tells us, though, to hold fast. Remember earlier I told you about these wonderful two perspective things? I did that for a reason because this is one of those places. This is written with a pastoral heart to a, to a body of believers like ourselves. And we're told here, from this perspective, remain faithful. I would tell you to do the same, wouldn't I? Remain faithful. Hold fast. Hold fast confidently. Be bold. Rejoice in the hope that you have. It's real. It's true. Keep the ship headed in the right direction. I would obviously tell you that. But from God's perspective, the true saints are those who will persevere because the persevering power comes from him. So I would never tell someone, oh, well, try your best, but I don't know. You may not be in the household of God. That, that, the pastorally, from a, from a man's perspective, we're told to keep going. Keep going. Be faithful. Don't change your direction. You know, um, we're told here in this amazing passage to hold fast, to fix our eyes and our minds on, on him. Real quick, your pastor was given a great opportunity to do this over the last two and a half year, uh, months, years. It seems like years, so two and a half months with my wife being gone. Um, and I know this is, this is such a trivial comparison. It really is in, in comparison to people who've lost loved ones. I didn't lose her. She's coming back. But I did go into this praying, Lord, in her absence, I really want to learn in my life that you are enough, that I can fix my eyes on you and you would be enough. And let me tell you, it's hard. You know, you do get to points where like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with this. I would like to have her back now. But you have people in Ukraine losing loved ones, losing, losing valuables, losing their country. And yet, what would you say? Would you, is Jesus enough? I mean, is Jesus anything? We can lose anything, can't we? We can lose anything at any moment. And yet we're told here to fix, consider Jesus, fix our eyes and our minds on him. We have to remember that Jesus has to be greater. So you might not care so much about the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses, but is he greater than your job? Is he greater than your spouse? Is he greater than your country, your education? He must be. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than anything. Fix your eyes on him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. What an encouraging word, Lord, that you are an amazing God. What a faithful Savior we have. You are Son, and yes, you served us. You came to serve us and not to be served, and yet you came as a Son, the Son of God, to die for us. Lord, I know we can easily lose so much in this world, and yet we're told to fix our eyes on you, to consider the greatness of our hope to have that confidence, that boldness to rejoice in the eternal salvation that we have, that we, as the household of God, have a heavenly dwelling, a heavenly place, Lord. Please, in the midst of continued difficulty coming upon this world, may we fix our eyes on Jesus. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.